Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to episode 68 of Conquering Columbus. And uh, today on the show, we have Mr. Nate DeMars. And Nate is the founder and CEO of Pursuit down in the short north. Uh, if you guys have never been there, Pursuit is a, a suit shop with a little bit of a different spin on it than your typical tailor. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. We'll talk a lot about the story of Pursuit and also get you some great tips on public speaking. Before we get to that interview, though, guys, I want to take a moment and uh, ask you all for a quick favor. Go ahead, pick up that phone of yours you're listening to this on, and uh, check out your podcast app, whether it's iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, uh, whatever you like to listen on. Uh, there will be a subscribe button, and if you click that, it'll make sure that you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. And the last thing we want to do before we start the show is take the time to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. All right, Conkers, that's all we got. Let's get this show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Uh, today on the show, we have Nate DeMars. He's the founder and CEO at Pursuit. Pursuit is a suit store for men with a focus on simplicity. They cut the clutter to provide just the current styles while their team provides the personalized service of an old-fashioned shop. Before founding Pursuit, Nate worked for a while at Whirlpool, and he graduated from the University of Minnesota Duluth before coming to the Ohio State University and the Fisher School of Business for his MBA. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Nate. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, we're really excited to have you on the show today. It should be a good episode. Kind of where we like to kick things off is just uh, we bring it back to the beginning, kind of talk a little bit about your childhood and uh, kind of where you grew up and what your childhood was like, what your parents did maybe, and then we'll bring it into college and, and talk about the entrepreneurship. Sure. I grew up in, I say, extreme northern Wisconsin, so kind of middle of nowhere up on Lake Superior, and uh, grew up in a town of about 8,000 people, so I... Uh, when I moved to Columbus, this was kind of big city for me. I grew up in an area that was way more lakes and wilderness than, than city. I went to, to high school in a small town, um, and I come from a, a family that was, originally it was just me. I was an only child until I was a freshman in high school. My parents had me when they were really young, and they had my brother uh, when they were about the age I am now. So I have a, a brother who's a sophomore in college currently, and, and myself. So I kind of got raised as an only child. I went to college nearby in Duluth, Minnesota, which is about an hour away from where I grew up, and studied marketing there. And, and uh, after college, got the job with Whirlpool that was, it was just kind of a random assignment, part of the, the um, 
program I was in there, you go through training with a bunch of other folks from all over the country. You uh, get shipped out to a market of their choosing without any uh, choice or without any uh, input on what, what that city may be. That was 2005, and they randomly selected Columbus for me. I've been here ever since. So what about Whirlpool? So you said it was with the program. So what did you kind of learn there at Whirlpool? And it's kind of interesting. How did you get from kind of 10,000-foot overview of working at Whirlpool to starting a suit shop? Yeah, doesn't appear to be a lot of connection between them. But the, the program with, <clears throat> excuse me, the program with Whirlpool was a sales and marketing program. Uh, I had studied marketing in my undergrad. So the idea was that they have a network of representatives across the country who work with all the retailers that, that sell their product. So it was kind of a sales job, but not in the uh, commission sales type of setting that a lot of first-time marketing uh, jobs might be right out of college. And they put you through a, a leadership development program. And you know, Whirlpool's a Fortune 500 company. It's, uh, I think at the time, was a $20 billion a year uh, revenue company. We were in the process when I started of, of buying what had historically been our biggest competitor in Maytag. So if you f follow appliances and washers and dryers, which I'm sure you do, that, uh, <laughs> that was kind of a big deal in the industry. So it was a really big company, and, and I benefited from the fact that they had been hiring fresh out of college business students and almost uh, felt like it was kind of an extension of college, their, their leadership development program. So I was in a program with eight, eight, seven other people. We lived in a house together full of appliances because they figured a bunch of uh, early 20s, fresh out of college, uh, men and women probably don't have a ton of experience with washers and dryers and dishwashers and ovens. And so went through a training program with them. And I think the idea was they find people that were willing to get stationed anywhere in the country Whatever that says about you says you're probably willing to move around and climb a ladder and uh, do the things that it takes to move up in a, a large international company. And uh, just so happened that my career path with them, I was able to get promoted twice within the first uh, few years that I worked there and did not have to relocate to do that, which was somewhat of uh, an unusual thing. So I, I benefited quite a bit from working at a huge company a company that I, I thought was very well run, kind of a uh, traditional, uh, slow-moving industry, not the most sexy industry to work in, but really solid company with uh, a really great culture. Uh, so I've always said when people ask about entrepreneurial advice, there's kind of this feeling that you should either, uh, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you should start a business drop out of college, start a business, not go to college, start a business. Uh, the day you graduate college, start your business. Um, but I think there's a lot of value in getting some training at a world-class company that can help you uh, polish yourself up a little bit and learn what the real world is like. So that, that path worked out well for me. What about your childhood? Were you entrepreneurial growing up? Were you, did you find yourself kind of trying to create your own companies or you know all those interesting stories that you hear about people um, selling lemonade on a corner or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I have a good story of being an entrepreneur as a kid, but uh, my father uh, works still for a company that is a, a family-owned international manufacturing company, a very niche company that makes machines for the paper industry. And it's family-owned, I think, fourth-generation business. So I was able, um, because of nepotism, I had a chance as a high school student to intern in the, the marketing department of a uh, a mid-sized manufacturing firm and I think I got to see a lot of things uh, in a business setting at a pretty young age so I knew from high school that I was really interested in business and I really liked strategy and understanding uh, the big picture of a company uh, I enjoyed marketing as a, I, I did DECA in high school a, a student organization focused on on marketing and business um, events and competitions so I was always better at that than I was at all the sports that I played so so I wasn't necessarily entrepreneurial, but I definitely, from a young age, had a, an interest in business. And I think that was always something my dad and I could talk about. We'd bonded over. And uh, my dad's an engineer who then went and got his master's in business later in his career. So I think that was always something that, that we shared that um, still I talked to him this morning about business. So Was he running the company or was he just an engineer within it? Or? No, he was, uh, when I was a kid, was an engineer who managed uh, a group of electrical and mechanical engineers and now he's more of a 
um, kind of a technical salesperson. So he's a it's a very technical company. They sell uh, you know, three, four, five million dollar machines that are um, uh, pretty complicated and pretty large purchases. So I think I learned during my college. I, I interned there all through college. Uh, I got to spend a summer in Germany thanks to them uh, and got some really cool opportunities. But I think I learned that if I was going to be you know, one, if I was going to stay there, which which didn't really appeal to me to live um, in the middle of nowhere, Wisconsin. But if I was going to stay there, uh, clever marketing probably wasn't the driver of success in a business. Um, nobody's going to see a really great video or read some great copy in a brochure and decide that they want to buy that $4 million machine. So uh, I, I kind of felt like maybe my talents would be utilized a little differently in a company that was um, not quite so B2B and industrial. Mm -hmm. And so what were some of the key things you learned while you were there at Whirlpool um, that, you know, maybe you brought with you to Pursuit and kind of what are some of the main lessons that really stuck with you from being at such a large company? I had, I had three roles with them in my four years. Um, the second role, I basically was a traveling speaker. Mm -hmm. So I gave sales presentations to a lot of the big national retailers that sold our products. So I would go to a Home Depot regional meeting and stand up in front of 150 people and tell them about new products or um, give them sales training. So when you're put in a position where you basically public speak for a living, uh, you get good at it. Certainly I was a lot better at it eight years ago when I was doing it every day than I am today. But you also get over whatever fear it is that the vast majority of people have when it comes to public speaking or getting up in front of an audience. Uh, and that fear is still gone. Sometimes maybe I wish it was there a little bit more. <laughs> but uh, I think that's something that has served me really well. I, I don't have a problem getting up in front of a room and sharing ideas or, or pitching pursuit or anything else. Um, so that was a, a tangible skill that um, I got a little bit of in college, but I think um, I really, they brought in uh, professional acting coaches to to help you get over your stage fright and to work on delivery. And so that was a cool thing that I benefited from at a, at a big company. And then my next role, my, my final role with them, I was a regional sales manager. So I had, I think it was about 14 people that reported directly to me. And we were scattered throughout the Midwest. We all worked remotely in different markets. So that was my first experience uh, being a leader, being a manager, and um, I don't know that I liked a lot of it. I, I think, um, especially in a big company, there's a lot of decisions that are made well over your head, and you may agree with them, you might not, but you're going to have to uh, execute them. And I think as we were, we were in the process of buying Maytag, there was a lot of upheaval and change in the organization, and I benefited from it. I got a promotion, but I also had to uh, execute a lot of changes that were uh, that were happening, and it just wasn't a good feeling to have a decision maybe you disagreed with and not feel like there was anything you could do about it. You just had to to smile and make it happen. And I think that's that's why I ended up, um, after getting my MBA, uh, that's why I ended up going the entrepreneurial route is I think the idea of controlling my own destiny a little bit more and making the decisions I think was really burned into me at that stage where I was ready for being in charge, I think. It's interesting that you brought up the public speaking aspect because obviously everybody's heard Warren Buffett's quote about how the Carnegie public speaking course is one of the most valuable things he's ever done. But when I sit back and I think about my own personal experiences and I stood in front of large crowds and had to deliver an opinion, whether it's in you know a conference meeting with all of your employees, once you get nervous, all of the clear, focused articulation in your head it disappears and you just turn into like a bambling idiot. And it's <laughs> unbelievable. So you sit there and you think like public speaking is not that big of a deal. But then even in the most smallest context it is because it's hard to get your thoughts across correctly to people if you can't get over that fear. You know, so it's, it's an interesting situation. And then those opinions that are made about you in those settings carry on to whether you make it to executive level positions or not. So I think it's really cool to hear how crucial it's been in your personal development. But to translate that into another situation that you were talking about, your leadership, and you said there's some things that you didn't like, did that translate over into creating your company, or do you like leadership in an aspect where you're the one making the calls? I definitely have been in a position with Pursuit for the last six years where um, most, most all decisions have run through me. Um, 
and some of that was out of necessity. Some of that was maybe out of inexperience as a as a leader and not knowing how to properly delegate early on in the business. Um, I don't know if uh, I think at least my time with Whirlpool um, showed me how difficult interpersonal management can be, and. I've tried really hard as a leader in my own company to make sure that people feel like they're they have a voice, even if uh, you know even if I've been maybe too much involved in the day to day of everything in the early days of pursuit. Uh, I, I've always wanted people to feel like they could share opinions and they could um, uh, contribute in a meaningful way to the company. And honestly, early on when uh, when we had our first set of employees. It wasn't, still isn't the most lucrative job you could have working for Pursuit. So we've tried to create a place where people feel like it's about much more than just a paycheck. Um, that they're creating something meaningful, that their voice matters, that Pursuit is not just me and whatever my vision for the company is, but it's, it's a living, breathing thing of its own. And some of that is, has happened over time, but I find myself um, knowing how, as we get bigger, knowing how I don't want to do some things because of how I saw them in the corporate world, um, but also maybe even more than that, knowing how much better a lot of things could be done by seeing a professional organization do it. Um, you know, I've studied marketing, have a good amount of marketing experience before starting Pursuit. We've had a lot of one-off things that have been super successful in a marketing sense, but we still have a really uh, amateur marketing operation, and it's because I've seen it elsewhere. Uh, I know what good looks like or world class looks like, and I know we're nowhere near that. So, so those are some of the the pluses and minuses that I think back on of my corporate days. That um, definitely a valuable experience having it, and I find sometimes I'm like today we just we're instituting a performance review plan, and I found some really old files from my time at Whirlpool because uh, they do a whole lot better job with HR and incentive structures and things than than I do as a small company, so. And as we begin to make the transition in this interview to talking about pursuit, one thing that you mentioned earlier I want to touch on is that you said you were perceived as someone who would relocate and kind of climb that ladder, and obviously you were promoted multiple times while you were there, so you kind of um, put off an image where you wanted to climb the ladder within their company, and then you went and got your MBA. Transitioning the corporate ladder climb to entrepreneurship is a pretty big 180-degree turn, so what in your head kind of switched during your MBA where you said, you know, I'm just going to transition this and I'm not going to go the corporate route anymore? Yeah, I, th I think the main thing was all along in the background, um, Whirlpool and, and my job wasn't the only thing on my agenda. My, my freshman year of college, I got involved with a grassroots nonprofit group that was um, completely unrelated to everything else that I do and have done mostly, but we were uh, trying to save this great old building in Duluth that had a really great history. Uh, it was going to be demolished and it was going to be uh, turned into a condo tower. And I worked with a bunch of volunteers for a long time to uh, lobby the city to give us the building and to try to put together a development to restore this, this building. Uh, and I decided at some point as I was uh, getting to the end of my time with Whirlpool that I never felt as passionate about what I was doing there as I did about the volunteer work that I did for, it ended up being almost a decade that I was doing that uh, on the side. So I actually went back to school wanting to be a developer who fixed up old buildings and my first project was gonna be the one that um, is still ongoing, believe it or not. This building is, we saved it, it's standing and it still mm -hmm. is yet to be redeveloped, redeveloped 14 years later or some really long amount of time. So I, I think I felt much more in control of my own destiny in that project and I felt like my component of the, the bigger picture was so much more significant. I always kind of said with Whirlpool that um, on a resume I could say that I had a sales territory that did $200 million in annual sales. I had all the Home Depots and Lowe's and Best Buys and Sears within like a four state region. It was a big amount of business, but I always said like if I took the year off, we'd do 1% less or and if I did a really great job, we'd do 1% more. Um, and it was a fine-tuned business. I was just helping on the margins. And I wanted to feel a little bit of uh, consequence, I think. Like, mm -hmm. I, I wanted good or bad, whatever I was doing, to not just be how do I get promoted next, but right. does this actually matter? Am I really making a difference? And um, 
So I think that's why I did the 180, because I had a little bit of that experience in my volunteer life. And it's, there's just, I have a deeper passion for it, I think is, is what I found. And now I'm in a position where everything, good or bad, 10 million decisions the last six years, uh, all have consequences and uh, it is the complete opposite. Um, and most of that is a good thing, I think. So I guess where I'm confused is where did the suits come in? <laughs> yeah, that, uh, there, there's been a lot of um, not connected lines, I think, right, in, yeah, in the story gone, so far. <laughs> we've kind of gone back and forth from Whirlpool to Pursuit, but we haven't figured out exactly how those stories meet up. Just yeah. wait till we get to this question, because I still have a question on the public speaking thing. I'm going to bring us all the way back to square one. <laughs> so I was really passionate about the, um, the real estate project, the preservation project. I went back to school to learn how to do that. Um, I thought an MBA was the best bet because um, I wasn't totally sure I'd be good at the real estate thing or that it was something that I could find a job in. Uh, so I, I went a little more versatile and I knew I enjoyed you know, my business undergrad. So I got an MBA thinking that there's a lot of things you can do with an MBA and it is definitely true. And Did you specialize in anything during your MBA? Or? I, I did. I made up a major in real estate. That wasn't one that was, that, that was offered, but I took some classes in urban planning. I took some classes at the law school. Um, beauty of Ohio State is they teach just about any possible subject you could ever think of, and Fisher's really good about letting you get whatever you want out of your education. So I put a ton of time into this really, really niche field of real estate, um, historic preservation, and was working on the side on that project back home, um, thinking I would move back there. And, um, and I think after a while I realized that um, it wasn't going to be as, as perfect of a fit as I had hoped. Um, it, I wanted that to be my full-time job. I was working with a board of volunteers that were maybe putting five or ten hours a piece into it for the most part. And the dynamic of me wanting to run as fast as I could with this project, um, but reporting to a a board of, of volunteers that were moving at a slower pace. Uh, I started to get cold feet about that being what I did next. And at the same time was coincidentally taking my first entrepreneurship class. It was uh, the second year of my MBA program. Just you know, every business student I think is at least casually interested in entrepreneurship. Took an entrepreneurship class. I had had a, a recent lackluster suit buying experience at a department store. and. The, the idea that I just threw out there on the second day of class when I pitched, uh, everybody had to pitch an idea, and that was just in my head at the moment that there isn't a modern way for a young guy to buy a suit that doesn't seem like it's built for his dad or way too expensive for the average young guy. And that was just supposed to be a pitch because that's what we had to do, and then it was just supposed to be a class project because everybody had to uh, write a business plan, and it just is built from there. That was over six years ago. And can you talk a little bit about, I guess, more granularity into the process of actually getting it off the ground from ide ideation to creation? Yeah, the the MBA program certainly helped. So, you know, with, with a lot of entrepreneurs, I feel like your idea comes from something in your immediate surroundings. Uh, and when you're a, a campus or a college or a grad student entrepreneur, uh, very often your idea has something to do with the life of a student or the life on, on campus. And I, I saw this opportunity with, with this concept of every college student, every college graduate needs at least the one suit that they're going to wear to a job interview. And I had been out searching for that. For me, that was the suit that I wore to get into the MBA program. And then it was a suit for some event that I needed uh, while I was in the program. But I saw these guys that were walking into the Ohio Union on career fair day, and it was like, hey, there's 10,000 guys all wearing what looks to be the same exact oversized black suit with a white shirt and a shiny red tie. Um, I really loved my strategy classes at Fisher, and I thought you know, all the encouragement was to come up with a niche business where you could carve out something that was uniquely yours. And I thought, where are these guys buying these suits from? I know I went to this big department store uh, and bought mine, and it was clearly not the right place. You know, it, it didn't feel like it was built for me. And I thought, well, 10,000 of these guys walking into the union are probably going to that same place, getting that same lackluster experience. Let's just make a store for those guys, do it 
as completely different from, as a de from a department store as possible and uh, see if we can't build this unique niche business that could work in other college towns. So that, that was the, the original inspiration for Pursuit was uh, all the suit stores were either one size fits all, Macy's Men's Warehouse, built for baby boomers, uh, your parents took you there because that's where dad shopped. Mm -hmm. uh, not relevant, I didn't think, not relevant at all to a, a younger guy. Or I'm really into fashion, custom suits or luxury boutiques that you know, are selling suits that are $1,000 and I didn't know anybody that was wearing $1,000 suits. So, um, so I saw an opening in the market and um, the more I looked into it, the more I could see that uh, it seemed like fun to build something that didn't exist. And being in an entrepreneurship class, they they had you write a business plan and walked you through the whole process. And I think it was probably not until right at the end of the quarter, uh, we were just still in quarters at Ohio State back then. It took about till the end of the quarter where I realized I was starting to get cold feet about what I thought I was going to do, move back to Duluth and work on that project. And I was getting more and more excited and getting more encouragement about this suit thing. And. Uh, some point I, I decided uh, well not at some point I, I, I joke that everybody needs some kind of origin story just in case they ever actually do make it and then they can <laughs> they can seem like there was some epiphany somewhere um, and for me it was spring break I went and rented a cabin in Hocking Hills just went by myself uh, and the idea was if I'm gonna do this I better get my act together because I'm graduating in 12 weeks or whatever it was so I got to decide, do I really want to do this or not? So I went off and uh, spent the week in the woods by myself and decided, I think I probably decided before I actually went there, but uh, I decided officially on that trip that, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go for it. Can't cancel the cabin yet. Uh, you had a seven-day window, so. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so, I mean, from there, what, I mean, what, are you, what are the first steps you take? Who, who do you hire? Do you need a tailor? Do you need a location? Like, what, how did you get this thing up and running? Yeah, didn't know much at all. Uh, knew, knew very little about suits. Uh, part of me on a good day thought that was why we were going to be successful, because we weren't going to be the, the people that read GQ from, from uh, their high school days and were fashion snobs. We were just regular, uh, regular people. Um, so flip side of that, though, is you really don't know much. I knew nothing about suits. I really uh, didn't know much about tailoring or fabric or what norms were so I spent the last quarter doing some heavy research into what suits people were wearing what people knew about suits trying to figure out everything I could about sourcing products um, always uh, wanted to sell pursuit branded clothing because um, I knew enough about retail to know that People these days want to have private label, their own brand clothing. They don't want to compete with department stores and Amazon and sell the same brands that you can get at other places. Uh, but I was really naive to what that would take to get suits manufactured. I thought everybody wears charcoal suits. Uh, everybody, I think a younger guy wants a slim fit suit. How hard could it be to go find a slim fit charcoal suit? And it turns out if you actually want it to be good quality and you want it to fit right and you want to trust that it'll show up on time and that is kind of hard. So I had a lot of learning to do. And about at that time, I think pop-up retail was, was starting to be a pretty trendy thing. Not many people had done it in Columbus yet, outside of like a Halloween store, like the classic pop-up model. So it was, a, it was a cool thing to say you were starting a pop-up store. And it also was a way that um, I, I thought low risk, concept test. And I, my backup was always, well, if this fails, I'm going to scrape together a little bit of money to make this happen. I was broke at that point, having gotten an MBA for two years. Uh, but I could scrape a little bit of money together. And if it works, awesome. If it doesn't work, uh, you know, I'll bite the bullet and I'll use this MBA and go get a job and pay that debt back over years. And um, So small concept test with a pop-up store on campus at the Gateway. And it worked, and it worked well, but it didn't work extraordinarily well. So it just kind of slowly, incrementally grew for about three and a half years. We were a pop-up store, air quotes for the podcast. Uh, we were a <laughs> pop-up store for three and a half years, and um, finally kind of the business evolved and my thinking about the business evolved. Um, a little over two years ago now, we shifted focus a little bit and we moved to the short north and, and opened uh, a 
more traditional permanent brick and mortar store. Um, and in between, I guess, the, skip the step that we, we built. Uh, another thing that was kind of a new trendy thing that, that we were one of the first people in Columbus to get on at least was um, we built a, a clothing truck. So we have still have it, what we call the suit mobile, which is a very miniature version of the pursuit store in a food truck style traveling format. So, so everything we've done uh, feels painfully slow to me at this point. We're six years in and I think my MBA business plan said that we'd have 12 stores and $30 million in revenue or God knows what I said back in those days. <laughs> uh, and we don't, um, but the business is a whole lot better and stronger and I think uh, realistically ready to scale is my hope. Uh, but it's been a lot of small incremental tests over uh, a long time. Are there any ups and downs in sourcing your product in the beginning stage of trying to, like, I mean, did you just Google some different <laughs> fabric makers? Like, how, how did you get down to that? Yeah, originally my, my plan was uh, let's cut out the middleman and let's find a factory to make this. I thought the, the beauty of the original pursuit strategy was if you're selling the one suit to a college guy, um, men's warehouse would have 50 suits to choose from in your size if you walked in the door. Pursuit would intentionally have, I think six is what we started with, seven maybe. So the, the strategic difference was this is the most stripped down, simplified, low overhead suit store. Um, so I thought how hard could it be to find those really basic products? Um, and we've found them now and we've added a whole lot more. But in the early days, I just didn't know enough and didn't have the connections and um, didn't know the customer enough that, that I could buy the, the factory minimums of all these um, of all these products. And I'm glad I didn't because if I would have scraped the $50,000 together to do it, I would have screwed up and I would have had thousands of suits that didn't fit right or the quality wasn't right. Um, so I, that was all, uh, I think, sealed in my head. I, I had spent many months trying to work with um, some clothing designers uh, and some factories and I sent a shirt that I had purchased at a store that I thought was like the prototype shirt, like this is what a Pursuit shirt should fit like and what the quality should be. And it came back like two months later, um, I get a package that was a burlap sack and it was sealed with wax and it was from a, a factory in India that I had found somehow on the internet. And I thought that was strange that it came in a burlap sack. And I opened it up and it was the wrong color and it didn't fit right. And I thought, I have no business working with a factory on the other side of the world with as little as I know and as little money as I have. Um, and at that point, I booked a flight to go to Vegas to the, the big magic trade show. And I started out with Calvin Klein and DKNY and Tommy Hilfiger suits and uh, decided I would source Pursuit branded product once I actually knew what the hell I was doing. And, um, so that's took about three years, four years after that, but we're finally at a point now where uh, every suit in the store is a Pursuit branded suit for the most part, I guess, and um, we're, f we're finally where that original business plan thought we would be from a product standpoint. I mean, so were you worried what you got in that burlap sack from India wasn't, a suit, wasn't gonna be a shirt when you opened it up? I mean, what were you thinking <laughs> when you get a burlap sack with wax on the top? What do you think could be in that? Well, I, it was, I, I think it reinforced how naive that I was. So I kind of, you know, I thought it was, it was a little bit disheartening, but it was also funny. It was a reminder of um, what, what I think the duality of this has been from the beginning of uh, big MBA ideas that look really great in a business plan, uh, solid strategy, or at least a strategy that I can articulate that sounds good, and the reality of how much harder it is to make things happen in real life. Um, so I think that was the, a, another good humbling step early on that was like, dude, you really don't have any idea what you're doing, so mm -hmm. you better find somebody that does or find some suppliers that do. So. And as you went through those ups and downs of sourcing your product and kind of rearranging your business model to fit the way that things were going to work moving forward, how has your value proposition to your customers changed from the beginning to what it is now? So basically what I'm asking, I guess, is for our listener base, why choose Pursuit today, and, and how has that changed over time? Sure. I, I think it is... Um, there, there's a lot more value today than there was in the early days. One of the premises that has stayed throughout was simplicity. So you don't have to know a ton about suits. You can walk in. We don't have a million choices. You've got somebody who can help you to make it easy. So for the guys that find buying a suit daunting or intimidating, uh, that has always been a key tenant. 
we've also always focused on reasonably priced products. So uh, that, that is like the inherent challenge that I chose, but you think about economies of scale, and if you're gonna be a, a small, low volume business, typically you have to be a, an expensive, luxury, high price point. That's the boutique model, basically. And we, from the beginning, have been price competitive with Macy's and Men's Warehouse. So I, th I think that has always surprised people that we could be this little one-off store that, that had reasonable prices. Um, and those things have stayed consistent all the way through. But the thing that is why we are so much more successful now and I think really finally hitting our stride is because uh, I underestimated in the early days the human component of it, the, the customer service component. Most guys that buy suits don't know a ton about them. They don't buy them very often. The places that they would go to shop on their own, they're kind of left to their own devices if they go to the mall. Um, or if they go to a fancier place, they're maybe, uh, they feel out of place or intimidated. Like they're not part of the club, they don't know all the, uh, the GQ fashion rules. So I think this expertise that we've developed of how a suit should fit, um, what modern approachable style is, so that guys uh, aren't guessing as to what the normal look for them could be. Um, I underestimated how unique that, that is at the price that we sell things. And um, the more e-commerce has, has grown, uh, nobody has, in my opinion, figured out how to translate that in an e-commerce setting. So I, you know, all the innovation in my business um, is an innovative business model, you know, kind of omni-channel e-commerce type setting. And what's worked for us is modern store, modern approach, but the customer service you would have got 60 years ago at any independent family-owned suit store that would have been in, in any city anywhere. So um, old school, new school kind of merged together. I don't know if that answered your original question, but that, yeah, <laughs> that, it does. that's where it's at now. And I guess to kind of bridge off that, what's the customer experience like from the minute somebody walks in a pursuit store to the minute somebody walks out? I, I think that is, that is the one thing that um, I think is, is very different with us. It is, uh, and actually something I learned from my days at Whirlpool, this idea of, of conversational selling. So when you walk in, uh, no one's going to steer you towards anything. You're going to steer yourself. So it's a, a lot of questions being asked. We're gauging uh, how much a customer knows, what a customer wants, what they're going to wear it for, um, how much they want to be driving the process or how much they want to be driven. Um, so a guy that walks in and says to stereotype, um, I'm a mechanical engineering student at Ohio State. I'm graduating in three weeks. Uh, I need a suit for this job interview that came up. Uh, we can usually, in a couple questions, find out, does that person know or care much about suits? Uh, if not, if this is a utilitarian purchase, we can steer them towards the right thing. They spend $300, it takes them 20 minutes, they're out the door, and it was way less painful than they thought. Um, flip side, it might be a, a 35-year-old attorney who has bought suits for years and has really particular taste, and that person might be driving the, the purchase themselves. Uh, they may have a real specific thing in mind. They might be super picky about our tailoring and exactly how we get it to fit. And uh, the, the result should be the same for either person, that they get exactly what, what it is that they want or they need. Um, and I think what's unique about that is a lot of stores that you walk into, that first customer, uh, you get out of your hair as fast as possible and you don't really put any energy or care into because they're buying your opening price suit and you don't make any commission on it and uh, you make all your money selling high-end stuff to, to older guys. And I think what's cool is you, you leave feeling the same emotional connection to Pursuit, whether you're the guy that didn't care at all and spent $300 or the guy that did care and bought three suits and spent $1,200 or something like that. So. So you can accommodate across the board, though, I mean, from top to bottom on that quality chain? It, we actually have, have even added what I consider the final piece, um, and it took a long time to convince myself that we needed this, but we are launching next month um, a line of custom high-end suits um, because we've had enough customers since we moved to the short north that um, tell us that their last suit came from Nordstrom or from Saks or from a, a custom clothing company and they love the Pursuit store, they love our brand, they love our people, and they have something really specific that they're looking for or a fabric quality that they're really excited about. 
Um, so that allows us to, as our customers grow up, a lot of them too, you know, their first suit might be during college, their second suit might be them and their groomsmen at a wedding, and um, their third suit might be, or their third, fourth, and fifth suits might be something a little fancier as they're further into their career. So um, that's part of the evolving business model is we've always always had really great basics at a really great value and, and solid service to go with it. And uh, now we're kind of adding, we, we've gone the other way. Most people start with the luxury um, and many never go down from there. Uh, we've started with the basics and kind of grown with our customers, I'd say. Definitely. So what are your goals for the next five years of pursuit, 10 years, and what's your vision for the ultimate future of the company? Time to go rent another cabin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's, it's kind of another one of those humbling things is to tell people what your ambitions are for something when uh, it isn't uh, as visible in real life. So I still think pursuit is something that nobody is doing on a national scale. And I think uh, we are building a business that can be scaled to be a national retailer. And that is my ambition. I don't know that Nate DeMars is the CEO of a 50 store or 100 store chain. I'm not sure whether I'm the right person to do that. Uh, but I do believe what we're building is unique enough and um, should be scaled. So the next step, and then it honestly took uh, probably until last year, our first full year in the short north, where the results in real life seemed like that was a realistic thing. Um, so starting to think now about a second store, hopefully sometime in 2018, we, we enter another market and, and open a second store and prove that it isn't just that Columbus loves us, but that we're building a business that stands on its own outside of our hometown. And, and then I think once we've proven that, then um, we can pick up the pace. and, and uh, look to grow faster. So I, st I still want to be a, a, a national retailer. And uh, it's weird to say that when you've been in business for six years and you have one store and a, and a store on wheels. But, um, but I think we finally have a model that is um, a, a unique enough offering and a well-executed enough offering that it makes sense to open another one. Then pulling it back to public speaking because you thought I was going to forget, uh, but I don't forget anything. Solid. What were some of the key things, I guess, that you learned during that that you could convey to a podcast listening audience that would help them practice or something that they could put in place for their public speaking skills? Or just Josh. Partic like particularly particularly for me. Yeah. There's, there's a couple of things that, that have always stuck with me. Uh, one is preparation. I have somewhere the audio recording in my iPhone of the second day of class pitch that I was going to give for Pursuit way back in the, that entrepreneurship class. Uh, I'm a real big believer in practicing, as awkward as it is, out loud, recording, listening to yourself and hearing, do I sound as smart or as bad as I think I do? Um, and there's something about Memorizing sounds awkward and forced, but there's something that hearing it back, you remember it differently, I think. So if you've got something important, I would stand up and uh, practice it as if you were giving it, walking around in the mirror or whatever it is, and record it and listen back and really get intimately connected to what you're going to say so that when you get up there and you have what you were talking about, that like, oh crap, I'm nervous and now it all just goes to hell. Uh, there's something in there that you can latch onto and it comes out more naturally. And I say that I did that for a, an event. I presented an award at the Short North Gala. This was one of my biggest failures of 2017 and it still bugs me. I always thought I was a good public speaker and I was giving an award to Randy Malloy, the owner of CD1025 at the Short North Gala. And I did that and I practiced it and the presenter that went before me was some kind of lifetime achievement award for two people in, in the short north that had just passed away. And I blame it on the emotion of this like, you know, heartstring type of speech before me. I got up there and just bombed, like one of the worst public speaking uh, performances I've ever given. And I had practiced. Um, and I think what I realized was I should have actually walked into that room. They had a teleprompter for me and I would never used a teleprompter in my life. Uh, but I think I was just a little too cocky that I was good at it and uh, forgot that it's a skill you have to constantly work at. 
So long-winded way of saying practice it and record yourself so you can hear it back. And then don't ever get so focused on what you're trying to say that you forget what the audience wants to hear. And this is like, I'm a salesperson. Like if I have one natural trait, it's to be a salesperson. And salespeople just want to tell you the stories they want to tell you. And uh, I mean, I've done a couple of those already today. They want to tell you what they want to tell you and they're going to drive the conversation. And that job with Whirlpool where I was standing up in front of audiences, uh, when you do that every day and you're looking in people's faces and you can see when they stop listening and they don't <laughs> care what you're talking about, uh, it's, it's a good reminder that it doesn't matter what you're supposed to say if nobody's listening. So uh, putting yourself in the audience's shoes, is a, that takes a lot of practice and a lot of, uh, you have to get beyond being comfortable and you have to start thinking about who you're talking to. So uh, that's, that's the advanced course I'd say that I, um, it took me a year of traveling around giving those presentations before I really felt comfortable adapting what I was saying to the listeners. Actually, I experienced a similar situation. So we had our senior wrestling banquet, and <laughs> similar, I say similar, and completely not similar at the same time. So my preparation was that we were out the night before um, exploring the city and, sure. and celebrating, and, right. and I, was, I was practicing, but clearly not in ideal environments. Yeah. And as we went up there, I didn't have note cards or anything, and I just remember looking out in front of everybody, and I just like lost all thought of everything. I probably said like four words, and I was like, I told them, this audience is way bigger than I thought. And then I just went back. I didn't thank anybody that I wanted to thank, and I sat down. But I killed it. Like, these people walk up, they're like, that's the funniest speech. I can't believe you planned that out. And I'm like, yeah, it was great, man. I just, you know, I had it planned out from the beginning. <laughs> like, it was, it was absolutely terrible. But it was just, like, one of those situations where I thought, like, man, I got this. And then I go up there, and everything just disappears. And I'm like, this was the worst idea I've ever had in my life. And then you're slightly, like, you know, uh, tired from the celebrations the night before so it was just a bad mixture yeah my best strategy was just making fun of coach ryan because everybody laughs when you make fun of the coach and he can't punish me after that so i get to i get to leave he can't get after me and uh, tom if you're listening to this i'm sorry <laughs> um but one of our last questions we always like to ask focuses on the theme of our show which is uh, live uncomfortably and for us it means a lot more than just putting yourself outside your comfort zone or uh, what our old coach likes to talk about is purposeful discomfort. Sure. Um, so what do you think of when you hear the phrase, how does it apply to your life and how does it apply to pursuit? Yeah, I think uh, when you when you start a business with $23,000 worth of credit card debt and no experience in, a, in an industry, um, it's extremely humbling and you're, uh, I knew a little bit of what I was getting into. I knew that starting a business was hard and um, I certainly put a lot of time into preparing, but I, I intentionally put myself in an uncomfortable spot and uh, that you know, was, was the first step. I remember in the early days of pursuit, like waking up really in, early in the morning or in the middle of the night being stressed out about like things that to me would seem really basic now. Like, I don't know how we're gonna solve this really simple thing or something that we solved a long time ago. So uh, a lot of people never get to that first step of being the inexperienced person that doesn't have all the answers, but doing it anyways. And then I think what I'm finding now is I, I have a great team at the store. Uh, it's taken six years to really polish the, the business model. And now I have a store that I don't work at on a, at on a regular basis at all. And a really great team who can do a lot of things better than I can in their, in their area. Um, so now I've maybe been a little more comfortable for the last year. And now I have to realize, I was in Chicago last week looking at some of the, the national retailers that I would consider, uh, I would consider my peers, they most certainly would not consider me their peers. And I thought, well, if, if, if I get comfortable 10 years from now, I'm gonna have one really great store in Columbus or I might have two really great stores in Ohio. Uh, but yet, you know, if you wanna get to those bigger goals, you gotta do it again. You gotta put yourself in that place of discomfort again and I think that's the, the ongoing tension of entrepreneurship is you, uh, you get to a certain level and then you need to hire that first big hire or you, you, know, you need to pick up some more debt to open a second store or you have to bring on investors because you really want to ramp up your, your growth. So uh, 
it's once you start to find the comfort after that initial putting your putting yourself on the line, um, it's hard to go back to that lifestyle. So um, trying to do that again now and do it maybe you know, smarter and better than I did it the first time, but knowing that if we want to get where we want to go, you have to step out of your comfort zone again and, and do something different. Yeah, well, I think it's a great place to wrap up, Nate. Thanks a lot for joining us on the yeah. show, sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And yeah. making us all better public speakers. <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, Conquerors, thanks for listening. That was Nate DeMars of Pursuit, telling his story and the story of Pursuit. And if you guys need a suit, head on down to the Short North, check out their store. Uh, their website will be linked in the show notes. And again, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.